What's going on, everybody? We are back with another episode of The Jungle, and I am blessed to have uh, my bro. And I say that because the first conversation that I had with Mr. Michael Pritchard here, he used bro probably like five or six times. And I am a firm believer if if you don't bro me, you don't know me. So uh, as soon as he started throwing that back and forth, I was like, oh, this is my guy. So Guys, Michael is the owner of Covenant Training and Consulting. Um, he's a staff analyst at the Fresno uh, Department of Behavioral Health. He's a substance abuse specialist. He's a lecturer and advocate. He has his own podcast called Better Than Well. He's a DOT, uh, SAP, uh, substance abuse professional. This guy's got his hands in everything. He's got an awesome story, and I'm so thankful that he decided to come onto the podcast and that I can push him and his story out to you. So. Uh, Michael, why don't you go ahead and just say hi to everybody? Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I actually didn't, uh, you know, expect um, to be on a podcast on a topic that I'm so passionate about. I mean, I do recovery podcasts and other things and do a lot of training on the topic and, and uh, human service related issues, intimate partner violence, behavioral health. But um, and, and on my own podcast, I'll talk about have people on that, that have some common history with me, you know, in terms of the incarcerated piece of my life. Um, but it's something I'm really passionate about. And uh, I don't think it gets talked about enough. And, and I think you and I both agree on that. And so I'm really happy that you brought me on the show to share my story and, and maybe add to the conversation any way that I can. Yeah, man, I, I, I got a word of you through, it was a, it's that email or the website group that we're both on. And um, there's not a whole lot of guys on there that I get that have the specific background and the, they come with that caliber of what I'm looking for. You know, it's, it's kind of niche. It's kind of, um, so when I saw you, I was like, oh, I would love to have this guy on. I've only gotten like four guests from that, from, from that directory because, there's just not a lot of guys out there that are willing to tell their story and have great comeback stories. I've got a lot of guys on my um, on my podcast that have great stories, but you, I mean, you just have your hands in everything. So uh, let's get into it, man. What? Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody kind of like what your background was, what it was like growing up, what your childhood was like, and then we'll we'll move from there. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I I, I grew up in a in a single parent household. Um, my mom raised me and my sister, and that's because my dad was in and out of the picture. He was a, an alcoholic and, uh, my, my teenage, my parents were teenage parents. And so my mother's family's kind of like white collar, very educated. My mom was kind of the rebel in, in the family, got involved with my dad who, you know, it, his, his, his family had, some problems, but, but my dad's alcoholism was the big issue and he was not faithful to my mom. And there was some intimate partner violence in their relationship. So she eventually left him. And, um, uh, I was born on, on Edwards air force base. Uh, and my mom stayed with him for a little while. And then when she left him, she brought me home to central California here in, in Fresno. And, uh, I was raised apart from him for most of my life, but I always wanted to see my dad. Um, and he would pop in and out of my life. But at the age of six, he was shot and killed in his in his addiction, and I was um, devastated. And it, it really caused me to you know act out in school, act out with adults. I was kind of labeled a problem kid. And um, shortly after that, I had a bunch of um, sexual abuse issues happen, uh, and I didn't really tell anybody about it. Um, that caused me to act out more and more. So I, I guess I say all that to say that I didn't really form good relationships with adults and peers in general. But as I grew older, um, at about the age of 10, I started hanging out with kids that had problems like me, right? Kind of the outcast group. Um, they introduced me to to uh, drugs and, and alcohol fairly young. Most of them were a little older than me. And um, I, I immediately took to, to drugs and alcohol. By the time I was 10 years old, I was a half a pack a day smoker already. I was alcoholic by 12, um, kind of probably inherited that from my dad. And by 14, I was already using uh, pills and meth. And then it, it, at 15 years old, I was hospitalized because I was having some pretty significant mental health issues. And um, and I was diagnosed. They wanted me to take medication. I wouldn't take it. I thought drugs worked better. So I had my first methamphetamine overdose at 16, first rehab at 17, second one at 18. Um, I got clean and sober at, at 18 for about four years because I um, 
had a son at the same age my dad was when he had me, and I didn't want history to repeat itself. So basically, I tried to pull it together. I was miserable for those four years. Me and his mom split up, and then I went off the deep end for like seven years. I was like um, in and out of, of jail, psychiatric facilities, um, in and out of treatment programs. I probably did three years worth of treatment <laughs> during that time. Um, and then I eventually ended up in prison um, and, you know, went to prison the first time for a short stint, went back for a violation. And um, by the time I, I got to prison the second time, I didn't find this out until years into my recovery that my mom was making active plans for my funeral. I, I was wrecking cars, bad accidents I shouldn't walk away from. Um, I I basically was written off by parole. If you read the reports going into prison, they were like, he doesn't belong in prison. He belongs in a long-term psychiatric hospital. Like, he's that sick. Um, just just not well. And um, a lot of it had to do with, with um, things that happened to me young that kind of warped me a little bit and took me in the direction of wrongdoing. But a lot of it was just my own choices um, in reaction to those early things that happened. And I take a lot of accountability for that. But in in um, I was in Soledad State Prison in 2006, and everybody had written me off. I had burnt every bridge, and I had nowhere to turn except um, back to the faith that I was raised in. And I felt like I had a spiritual awakening in prison that kind of changed things for me. And when I came out, um, I was I was really I, I got well, and people didn't believe I was well. <laughs> you know, they were really yeah uh, yeah they didn't. And I mean parole. Um, you know, my mom, everybody was kind of done with me and, and I had really changed. Um, I had really changed in relation to my outlook on life and, and everything else. But, you know, I was, I, I paroled with, with nowhere to go. I had nobody. I, they gave me $200 at the gate, like they do everybody else here, buy your bus ticket home and whatever's left is just kind of what you get. And, um, you know, from that point on, I had to rebuild my life to where I'm at now. And so I slowly, I started going, uh, I went into a reentry program that was more of a work furlough program for six months because I had nowhere to go. The only thing that program did for me was provide some food and shelter. And they told me, if you don't have a job in 30 days, you're out on the street. So I was lucky to find a job five days before I got out. And or I mean before uh, before I got kicked out, and um, I worked in that job installing glass uh, for about three years. Was going to church recovery meetings and stuff like that. Was determined to stay well. Was uh, in sober living, um, trying to rebuild my life. And um, I ended up going to a recovery church. Met my wife, and um, we're married today. She's also in recovery a year longer than me. I got um, two daughters with that. My son. Lives in Philadelphia with his mom now, but we have a good relationship. I just got back from there um, this last week. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what direction to go in life. You know, I thought that, you know, having a record is a considerable barrier no matter where you go. But doors started opening for me as uh, the economy bottomed out in 2008. And somebody's like, Michael, you're working with people with addiction in your own time out of the goodness of your heart. Go and go and do it professionally. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do it professionally. I don't want to, um, you know, be involved in it to that degree, but I really didn't have a choice. So I went on to get my certification, drug and alcohol counseling. I got my bachelor's degree at the same time. I was trying to go to school, work full time and just keep myself busy. And um, so I ended up um, getting my first job. Um, there was a lady who I went to a 40 hour training on domestic violence to get certified. And she, she uh, ran, uh, was one of the people that ran the women's shelter. And I, and I have a violent felony on my record. And um, she got me a job in, in the shelter. She gave me a chance. And that one chance, I worked there for a year, got me hired with Fresno County Behavioral, I mean, uh, Department of Social Services. I went to work for Child Protective Services for three years as a substance use professional. And then um, after that, I started doing some training internally. Um, I went to some some training for Fresno State that was kind of mandated for workers. And um, I, I ended up going back to get my master's degree in addiction studies, and they brought me on to train. So now I was training social workers in like 12 counties in, in California. Um, and eventually, um, I I went to Department of Behavioral Health, and I 
went to some um, conferences on addiction, which I have to do to get my CEUs to keep it up every year. And I met the CEO of the biggest certifying organization in, in California. And we kind of hit it off. And a, a few months later, he asked me to come be on the, the board um, of CCAP. So I went on the board and um, eventually became president of that organization, um, was hired on shortly after that by Fresno State to teach in criminology, <laughs> you know, just really weird, bizarre um, opportunities that kind of built on each other. I didn't just get thrown opportunities. I just happened to meet people along the way. And um, I, I was an expert in, in in committing crime and an expert in addiction and using drugs. And so people are like, well, if you recovered from that, um, addiction and domestic violence and mental health issues touch everything that we do in human services. So come and help us work in that because you understand this at an academic level and a personal level. So right. anyway, right. I, I started to do all that and I went to work for um, UC Davis training um, social workers. And then I opened up covenant training and consulting. I wrote my book better than well, and then started doing a podcast, which I haven't done for about five months. But my goal with that was just to put stories out there um, of people getting well from various things and overcoming in various ways. Um, I believe there's a bunch of different uh, pathways to get your life back together. And people would just tell their stories. Sometimes it was child welfare. Sometimes it was intimate partner violence. Uh, sometimes it was addiction. Sometimes it was all of it. Sometimes it was incarceration. And so it was just to give the community hope and awareness, kind of what you're doing. And um, that's really my story. It's where I'm at today. I've been clean and sober for 17 years. I paroled in 2006. And um, it was a struggle. It was a struggle for two years getting on my feet. I mean, it sounds like all these opportunities just fell in my lap. But but the reality was, um, I, I didn't know like how I was going to pay my bills some month. I just I just wasn't making enough to really get by. I did have um, problems with my with my criminal record in the beginning. And then recently, um, what happened um, this last September, I went to court and got my uh, felony um, removed from my record. And in California, beginning in 2023, that wasn't a possibility before 2023, because once you hit the prison yard, you weren't allowed to get your record expunged. Um, well, and that's, stuck. that's something that's I, something I, that, that we were obviously going to segue into because California's whole prison system and the way that they're starting to adapt things is much more advanced than what we do in the Midwest. And I know you had told me to look up the Norwegian, which I was already semi-familiar with their, their prison model over in Norway, because California is starting to adapt all that. Um, and I'm a little bit of, I'm a little bit further ahead than where I wanted to be at this point because I, yeah, I no, really, no, you're, I, I wanted to because it's not the focus of the show, obviously. But can you tell everybody like kind of what your charges were? And the only reason I want to bring this up is because where you're at now versus where you were at at that point. I mean, you and I had the discussion on the phone. And I think that's extremely relevant because of the crime that was committed and where you're at today. So if you don't mind explaining, I think everybody would probably get something out of that. Yeah. And, and I moved through my story fast, but at, at any point in time, if you want me to go back and, and talk about anything specific in that, yeah, feel free. Oh, I got, um, so, I got my pet. I got my pet, Mike. I'm taking notes and we're, cause right. you've already made a couple, I take notes. So yeah, we're going to go back through, but yeah, you're good, man. Do your thing. Yeah. So, so what happened was um, uh, opioids are my drug of choice, right? Um, and I, I got really addicted in my teens and, you know, opioid withdrawal sucks, right? Like yeah. people like the way opioid feels, but going through opioid withdrawal is brutal. And, um, I got tired of it, but I didn't feel like, I felt like I could taper myself off of opioids. I'd done it before, but I just couldn't stay stopped. So my bright idea was to use methamphetamine and, and kind of like, oh, I'm just going to try to use meth while I, while I, um, you know, to be high on something while I taper off of opioids and eventually. So. I'm pretty high strung, dude, and meth meth put me in, in psychosis because I couldn't sleep, uh, didn't eat. California, methamphetamines are our biggest problem. It always has been. Well, um, I there were there were weeks when I when I didn't sleep, didn't didn't eat. And, um, you know, when you're on a powerful stimulant like meth and you don't eat and don't sleep, you get psychotic. Well, um, I was an avid shooter and I had a house full of guns. And, and one night I thought I heard somebody breaking into my apartment and I had enemies. So it was like a legit concern. And I, I shot at my apartment complex with a 12 gauge. Is what happened. 
And um, they manhunted me for two days, um, caught me in a neighboring uh, a town. And, and oddly enough, because it was my first major offense, what they did was they said, we're going to give him probation and we're going to send him down to L.A. on Skid Row in a program down there. And, um, you know, I think they were trying, Fresno was trying to move all of its problems to L.A. That's what I think what they were doing. So I go down to L.A. and it's like the worst homeless situation you've ever seen. It's not as bad as it is today, but um, I, I finished the program. And then when I got out of the program, uh, actually, I relapsed right before I got out and went back to heroin, came back to Fresno Heroin Addicted, ultimately picked up a, uh, uh, I had to go to prison as a result of it. And, and then, um, I was out for a while, kept using, um, and my mental health kept deteriorating. And so they caught me with, um, a, with live ammunition. And so they sent me back on a violation. Um, and this is when the spiritual awakening happened. So I had a pretty serious felony on my record. Um, I think it was assault with a, with a deadly weapon. What kind of, what kind of, what kind of time were you looking at with those charges out there? Three, three years, and I served a year in prison on that and a year county time. So I did about two years total. Okay. And, um, yeah, I was looking at I was looking at three years. H had I had any priors, it would have been a lot. Um, the, the DA, obviously, in fact, when I went to prison the second time and I stood in front of court, um, they, they said he is a significant public threat. He needs to be supervised at the state level. Like he, he, he can't, he can't be out here. He's too mentally unstable. He grabs guns when he does drugs. Like, you know, he fires them off when he's freaked out on meth. Like he, he can't be out here. So, um, they weren't wrong. Um, uh, you know, I think that, I think I would have benefited from treatment. In fact, I talked the judge that day into sending me back to treatment, but he wanted to send me back to LA. And I'm like, I'm not going back to Skid Row where I became addicted again. I'll just go to prison. And that's what he did. Yeah. He sent me to prison instead. I was trying to be self-protective, actually. Okay. okay. So, so I, I do I, want to I, talk, I, though, I, also, I, because I, you, California, California prison, prison is, is looked at on, looked in at the Midwest as being Midwest much harsher and much. It's, it's not it's the not same the type same of prisons type that we have out here. Out here. And you had some pretty had some rough go-ats or rough go-rounds in prison, correct? Like, it's, it's... California prison is notoriously violent, right? So we have, we have four, we have four uh, level yards. We have, you know, one yards, one yards are, you know, they're the ones that work in the prisons and kind of like keep it up. They're not, you know, super high offenders. Uh, level two uh, can be you know, dorms that they don't necessarily, they may have jobs in the prison, but they don't have the freedom as they do on level one. Controlled level twos are, are level twos with cells. Con level threes is like, then you, it's really starts, you know, getting political, like you see, you know, in prison, prison politics come into play. Um, level three points are, are, you know, it's a pretty violent yard. Four, fours, fours are, are, are pretty, <laughs> pretty violent yards. That's where uh, most of the violent, most violent criminals, uh, if they have a charge with a violent crime, go. So I went in with level three points the first time. And, I, you know, in the year I was there, I was, after our conversation, I was trying to calculate how much, how many violent incidents I actually saw in there from just from fights all the way up to, you know, stabbings or people getting, you know, their throat cut or, you know, or, or just like people ODing on drugs or other things that I saw in there. And it was like, man, it was like every couple of weeks I was seeing something pretty major. So you being, you being a new first time through the gate. And seeing stuff like this, what was your mentality? What was your mind state? What was your what what emotions were running through your head at that point? Because that's that's terrifying. That's traumatic, honestly. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. And and um, you know, the thing of it is, is like when you're an addict running the streets, you're around the people that are already in there. But what you don't understand when you go into prison is the politics and the rules, right? Yeah. And, and so when you show up on a level three yard and you're like you know, being told, uh, these rules, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of shocking. Um, you know, and there's a lot of, uh, uh, rules, you know, just where you can, can't go, who you can talk to, who you can't talk to, um, very, very racially divided in, uh, in California and among, you know, uh, you know, racial lines. And it's, 
yeah, I, I was a little nervous and, and, and not to, I didn't know what to expect. And especially when you're coming off the street and, and when you come into prison, you're not always in your most healthy uh, spot. You know, you kind of feel a little vulnerable until you start working out in there and, and getting big yeah. and getting yeah. healthy. You know, you kind of feel a little vulnerable. Um, luckily for me on my, when I went in there, you know, I had, there were some people from my area that I knew, um, you know, that, that was helpful. Um, people that kind of took me under their wing and, and showed me the ropes and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, on my second term, I didn't want to catch more time. So I, I went from a level three to a controlled level two. The controlled level two is as low as lifers can go. So the yard I was on was 80% lifers. But they were, it was still a programming yard. I went to Soledad. Soledad's a historic prison in California. It's one of the early prisons. And so it was pretty settled. Um, even though there was still violence there, I was able to like, you know, kind of keep my head down and, and, and stay out of the fray. Um, well, that, that, the, the, the levels sound very similar to what Ohio's prison system is like. And I was on a controlled level two for my entire bid. And you just mentioned that you have lifers down there and it's like 80% lifers. And that's why, honestly, they had one dorm and it was called the jungle. That's why the name of the podcast came from, but that dorm was wild. It was all the young kids, all the gang members. And it's like, they consolidated them into one yard. If you were new on the compound, that's where you went. I spent like six months in there, but then you get out and you get around all these lifers and they're trying to, they're trying to serve out their bid. They don't want any of the bullshit. They just want to, they don't want to be locked down. They want to be able to go out of the yard. They want to be able to do their thing. And a lot of those guys are the guys that are putting their foot down that call the shots in there once, you know what I mean? They're like, no, we're not doing all this. So it's, it's a blessing and a curse and the same thing. Cause obviously yeah. it's still prison. There's still tons of bullshit that goes on. Oh the, yeah. And you can get yourself in a wreck really quick. I remember, um, I remember this, when I, when I got to Soledad, there was this big white dude that came up to my cell and he's, he, you could tell, I mean, he had the keys to that yard. Um, and, and he had been there a long time and he was like, um, let me see your paperwork. Right. So I'm like, fine. You can see my paperwork here. Uh, and, but I, I remember looking at this dude going, I wonder who he killed to get here. Right. I mean, just, just a real scary dude. And, um, and he, he, you know, he, he was instrumental in, in kind of showing me, he's like, man, don't do drugs in here. Take nothing from no one. That's what he said. Like, yeah. and cause you can just get yourself in a wreck real quick. He's like, don't yeah. do drugs. Don't get yourself into debt, you know, and, and almost all the violence in the yard on the yard had to do with something related to drug debt, man. I saw people OD in Soledad. Um, th there were drugs all around, you know, uh, people, you know, we, you see them, you know, shooting up drugs being passed back and forth. Oh, yeah. and it was, yeah. it was infested with drugs, but it's funny how I could stay clean in there, but I couldn't stay clean out on the street. And I think it's there because you, you feel vulnerable and out on the street. I think I had, I say in my book, the one thing prison did for me this last term was take the stress off of having to deal with life. Cause the only thing I had to worry about in prison and trying to get well was, um, was working out, reading, um, eating and sleeping. That was it. You yeah. know what I mean? And so my last term, uh, despite all the nonsense that was going on around me, I was very focused and I was able to, you know, really get in shape, get my mind in shape. Um, and prepare to get out. But once I got out, I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no family to go to again anymore. You know, I didn't know what parole was going to do me, do with me. I came out high control, high control means like super monitored because you have a violent crime. Um, yeah. and so they, they knew I had mental health issues. So they forced me to do parole outpatient clinic, which was, you know, and, and I stopped taking medicine while I was in prison. I didn't take it anymore. And, um, it was just a real stressful time. I just didn't know how I was going to make it, but I had this hope in me from the spiritual awakening that I had that things were going to work out and be okay. I just didn't know how. So there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of angst uh, around parole. Yeah, man, it's, you just made a comment that like you were able to, it's wild how you were able to stay sober and not want to get high while you were in prison. I, my mom, She's asked me time and time again. She's like, I don't understand. She was like, you were a mess out here on the streets, but yet you go to prison and it's in Lake Erie. I, I posted a video, the, um, NC or the, the NAACP posted a video on Lake Erie because it was the first, um, for-profit prison in Ohio, or maybe it was the first for-profit, uh, state prison. 
And when CCA took over, it was just drugs and duffel bags over the walls. And it was, it was wild. There was probably more drugs in there that I could find if I wanted them than there were on the streets when I was out running the streets. But so she always asked, she was like, you know, how did you stay sober while you were in there? You had, all, you had all this access to, like, she watched the video. She's like, it was obviously running rampant in there. And I told her, I'm like, you know, I, all, I was fortunate enough and blessed enough that on my way down, going through Lorraine, which is reception and being in County and everything else, these guys are like, you know, don't get into debt. I had a lot of guys that like coached me knowing it was my first time down the road that are like, these are what, it's what you do and what you don't do. Um, and I wasn't going to be that guy that got into debt, man. Like I wasn't going to be, and I honestly, by the time I got down to prison, I had already made the decision. I was done, you know, like that's, that's the bottom of my road. That's, I'm just done with all this. So, um, let's talk a little bit about this, about California's prison system and how they are starting to implement because you yourself are kind of helping segue into this Norwegian model. So why don't you, let's go ahead. I'll have you explain kind of what the Norwegian prison model is. I think kind of how you're helping to implement that and what your role is in implementing that throughout well, the California. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I hope to be my role is. I'm, I was approached for, um, you know, highly encouraged to apply for this program that they're creating here in central California. That is going to be a, uh, a reentry program, but it's not going to be for, uh, people once they parole per se, they're going to still be in custody on ankle monitors. Technically they're still in prison, but it's kind of like, you know, when you exit prison and it's like, okay, good luck versus like you're in a program for two years where you have food and shelter and housing and case management and everything. And then when you finally actually do leave the program parole, you have a job, you've paid off a lot of your debt. You have um, repaired relationships with your, your family. You have a place to go live when you're done. You have enough money and saved enough money to afford a place to live and probably a vehicle. So imagine having like a longer sentence in the last six months to two years before you actually get out of prison, you're able to accomplish all this. And so you're on your feet. Well, th that's the goal of, of this reentry. And it's much more in line with the rehabilitative side of, of prison that we see happening in Norway and actually some of the other countries close to Norway too. Um, and, you know, to talk about California in general, um, you know, in 1970, the Nixon administration, um, you know, basically declared a war on drugs, right? And that has caused a lot of the prison uh, population to increase over those these decades. And so California, or, uh, America's, what, 5% of the world population, and we incarcerate 25% of the world's incarcerated. And, you know, when you look at that, there's something wrong with that. Why is that happening? Well, California is a the most populous state. And it's also uh, the state, despite people thinking that it's, you know, the super liberal state. And, you know, like I said on the phone, I, you know, people say, oh, you're from the left coast. Well, actually we have a ton of conservative people. Here. Hey, I didn't yeah. say that. Yeah, I know you didn't say that, but it was, it was other people. They were like, oh, you're from it the It might've ran coast. through my mind, but I didn't say that. And I didn't know you. So I but, wasn't going to yeah. say that. Yeah, no. And, and, and actually, you know, I'm from Central Valley and, and Central Valley is the California Bible though. Like we're, we're very much like Texas in that regard. Oh, okay. you know? uh, it, it's, it's probably somewhere like Dallas or, or, you know, one of these, uh, I've, I've, I've heard people compare us to Dallas, but um, so, so California had a very, very heavy hand in the war on drugs, um, even in the most liberal cities that are on the coast. And um, it got to the point where, you know, when, when you, when you make drugs, uh, illegal themselves, even if you don't necessarily have a problem or just have it for your own use. People were getting long sentences eventually for this just for having a drug problem. And that's how we got to where we were, you know, in California. Well, you know, what what do we know about people that end up in prison? Well, a lot of them have childhood um, trauma that happened to them that kind of tilted them in the direction of wrongdoing. And, and they eventually made some bad life choices that got them there. And for a long time, they were just treated as throwaway people, you know, people that were bad seeds that were, would never rehabilitate. Um, and and we have we've discovered, you know, that that's not true. Um, in 2016, this was about five or five or six years ago, they came out with a study that said there was more people in active recovery from addiction than there was in active addiction in America. But we, but see, that's not publicized. No. So people no. do recover. 
people do get their lives together. And um, even the ones that can do it without any any state help or real, uh, you know, real positive intervention from the state that they I, I like to tell people that I recovered in spite of prison, not because of it. But it should have been because of it, because, it's the it, it, you know, they call us Department of California or uh, California Departments of Correction and Rehabilitation. Well, the rehabilitative efforts, as you know, um, it's very hard to rehabilitate people in, in an atmosphere that is tense like prisons. Oh, yeah. Right? And, and it's it's minimal anyway. Yeah, it's minimal anyway. And but even even with the efforts that they, they did in California um, and, and, you know, it still needed to be improved. And so the, the Norwegian model is completely rehabilitated. You know, they don't they don't look at people as bad seeds. They they look at them in in a different light. They look at them as people that maybe have hey, some Mike. things. That, hey, Mike. Yeah, I'm just going to stop you real quick because I I want to explain to everybody kind of what the Norwegian model is, and it's I, what you're saying is great, and I I hate to interrupt you, but I don't want people wondering what's going on. So what the Norwegian model is. And Germany's followed suit. I was just watching a bunch of stuff on it earlier because I, I wasn't quite uh, up to date on it. I know I had looked at it in the past. But basically, your loss of freedom is your punishment. And in these prisons over in Norway and over in Germany, uh, you have these inmates who they wear plain clothes. They're put into programs. They're taught skills. They live in villages. They are able to make money and, uh, you know, learn learn trades learn so on and so forth and they're constantly in therapy where it's it's actual rehabilitation um the one video i was watching i think dateline did it and i was watching it was like a 15 minute clip this guy was in for murder and he had a life sentence it was 20 years in germany he's coming up on i think 15 years and now he goes home on the weekends he they've got a big lake his family like they they literally let these guys out in public for furloughs on the weekend to reintegrate them back into society and it was funny because they did a it was 60 minutes i watched another one did an episode with a warden from pennsylvania and this warden they took him over they did an interview before and then they did an interview after his visit to this prison over in uh norway the interview before, he's like, what is this, a circus? He was like, that's what it looks like. He's, he's like, there's no way that works. This is crazy. This is, this is madness. He goes over, does, does, has his visit. Then they did the other interview, and he's like, it's wild, but it works. He's, and, and that's been that's been my thought on everything from the start. If you don't go into prison with the mentality of, you know, I'm going to learn whatever I can. I'm going to, I'm going to make a positive out of a negative and you change your mindset and you get in there and you, you build off of your experiences. You're just going to end up back at square one. So the fact that, you know, and now this, this warden, he's, he's implementing a lot of these like things that he can, because obviously funding's an issue. Uh, but he's implementing a lot of these things that whatever he can into uh, his prison in Pennsylvania. So, again, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just no, 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 no I, I didn't want everybody no worries. wondering I, I, what the Norwegian prison model was. Yeah. And, and um, you know, in terms I, I know that I was told yesterday um, by the individual who who is kind of, uh, uh, you know, putting this program that I was talking to you about together. Um, you know, she said they're implementing it in San Quentin, um, you know, oh, wow. elements of this in San Quentin. Um, and, and so I was like, I was kind of excited about that. And it's great that they're doing that in prison. However, um, you know, I, I, I like even better the model of, of, well, it needs to be out and in. So, so for the prisoners that, that maybe have a, a, some more issues to deal with, uh, maybe they're going to be there for a longer period. Um, prison needs to be uh, rehabilitative, um, you know, like like the Norwegian model. But for lower level prisoners, guys like that were in level twos like you uh, and me at the end, you know, we could have served our sentence on a, on a monitor like like this in program and been case managed and, and back to the oh, street yeah. instead yeah. of going to prison. And 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 then we wouldn't have necessarily had the barriers that we we had when we got out and that's what this program is going to do. I mean, there, 
they want to open, um, you know, a, 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 a music uh, studio to do recording and podcasting and, and put emotional support dogs in the facility and, you know, have sports and basketball teams and um, help these guys get jobs and, and be able to, you know, care for themselves and teach, you know, pro social skills and reconnect them to, to family and, and other people in the community that will help elevate them. And really, um, if you don't give somebody the ability to rehabilitate and become the best them that they can be and help them understand that like they could have they could be more than they're being and they're not meeting their full potential they're going to continue to spiral downward and sometimes they spiral downward into really dangerous elements in armed society you know well when you don't when when you don't don't have anything to to express yourself or you have no skills you have no self-worth like there's so yeah, I mean, well, we're, we're, I think that's wild. They're doing that at San Quentin, though. That's what it, what was it? We're just going to take one of the worst prisons that we can think of in the U.S. Well, actually, and throw the <laughs> actually, San Quentin, San Quentin, as far as I know right now, and and I don't want to speak out of, out of turn because I don't know exactly like all the level yards have in it, but I think it serves as a reception at this point. It's a very oh, okay. old, outdated prison because you know it was built so long ago. Um, Soledad's old. Tracy's old, Chino's old, San Quentin's old. These are some of the older prisons in California. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're going to um, model, if you're going to use a, a, a prison to do that, you know, you pick a pilot prison and you start implementing it and see seeing how it works. What I do know is that what we've done in California up to this point has not worked. It has not worked to, to help curve. Well, I, I can see a flaw just in what you said. Why are, why are, and call me the devil's advocate. Why are you implementing this system in a reception facility? Oh well, it doesn't mean the whole prison's reception. There's probably okay. So you guys do have yeah. you got because I I know Lorraine used to, which is our reception facility. They used to house long-term inmates, but they stopped when the prison population started spiking. No, even, even even in Wasco here in Central Valley, they have they have a um they have a mainline yard there. On top okay. of reception. So I'm assuming that's where they're implementing it. But um, it's, okay. I think it's primarily, I think it's the reception, uh, part of its reception for, for Northern California. But um, yeah, I could, I could be, I could be wrong, but I, I'm almost certain that it is. But, you know, I'm just, I'm happy they're rethinking this and, and doing, and doing this. Um, you know, my son wanted me home and well, right? He, my son wanted me home and well. Uh, me not being well and getting the services I need could have jeopardized him long term. You know, and and a lot of these guys in here, man, they 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 had kids and they they had families that they were reaching out to and writing to, you know, um, they they stayed connected on the outside and eventually they're going to get out. You know, I have a friend who is serving a pretty long sentence and, and he'll be out soon uh, within the next few years. And, and he reaches out to me all the time to his to his daughter, to his other family members and stuff like that. I mean. Uh, somebody like that would be perfect for the program that that I'm hoping to be involved with here uh, down the road and in, in putting together. So, you know, I, I just think that this idea that people can't change or won't change or that we can't trust them to change, um, I, I don't think that's always true. You and I talked on the phone and I think I mentioned there were people I met in prison that were I don't believe anybody's completely unrehabilitative, but it would have been maybe more difficult to rehabilitate them. And I, I remember, yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, man, you're scary. I'm glad you're here for the rest of your life. There's, <laughs> there's those guys, right? <laughs> but, 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 but I don't, but I don't think that's true of, of, of everyone or the most of them by far. I think with enough work, finding what, what motivates that individual, helping them paint a long-term vision for their life um, that is more desirable than what they were doing. Um, you know how in prison, you know, there's when people aren't given the opportunity to be the best they can be out in society, they will become the best criminal they can be. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. So that means that people are always trying to strive to be the best at something or, or to, to derive some sort of self-esteem from something, even if it's um, negative attention. Right. And I, I think that I just believe people can be, you know, rehabilitated. And, you know, I'm hoping that America switches course. You know, how many guys in there that were just really smart or super artistic that are sitting there rotting in prison that could be really benefiting society with some help? It's not even the really smart, Mike. It's 
I met so many great guys while I was locked up. And I, you know, maybe, and that's what you level the playing field when you're in there, because you both know you're at the bottom of the barrel at that point in society. And to be able to sit back and talk to a lot of those guys, it's, they're great guys that I met in there, man. A lot of them, I wish I would have kept in contact with a lot of them. I did one of them was my best friend. I, my whole little group that I have of uh, guys that I talk to on a daily basis, we're all local. We all didn't grow up together, but we grew up in the same neighborhoods. We're all ex-convicts. We all have been down the road, but we've all made amazing lives for ourselves. You know, and they've, I've done episodes with them on here, but you're right, man. If, if people aren't pushed to their full potential in some sort of positive aspect, they're going to go in the opposite direction. And it's, it's all about direction. It's most of these guys aren't raised with, proper guidance growing up. They're not pushed to be the best version of themselves that they can be. And so they stumble backwards and end up walking in the opposite direction. So, and I have to say that I had some advantages. Um, one of the advantages was, is, you know, my mom's side of the family in particular really modeled what it was to be successful, um, uh, contributor to society to society right my my grandfather was a federal agent for the irs right? <laughs> it was like straight laced law enforcement uh uh investigator my grandmother was a nurse um you know all the people on my mom's side of the family are successful so when i did decide okay i'm, I'm going to try to go a different direction i had a model on where to go that is not true of everyone some people come from really broken situations where that's never been modeled and so they have to learn, right? They, they've they've never mingled with with uh, you know they never learned to communicate, uh, you know, in a way that's going to help them be productive in society and interact with people well. Well, I'll tell you, man, and that's going through life. A lot of the people that I've had on here come from really great homes, but really terrible. And I shouldn't say terrible, but. But just bad situations, you know, there's, there's, there's substances involved. There's no communication. You don't, and just like you just said, you're not pushed onto society with the tools to communicate that you need to um, be effectively be successful. So, but it comes in all different. I know tons of guys that came from the hood that have made amazing lives for themselves, pulled themselves out of the gutter. I know guys that have grown up. I was one of them, grew up a spoiled brat. You know, and still fell backwards, but there was no communication in the household. There is no. Did so you, it's. Do, do, do you feel that gave you an advantage, like like in helping get get your life back together? That you, you know, had that modeled for you. Uh, so what I'll tell you is, uh, my family. It was. We had what looked like the perfect family model. Mom and dad were together. My, me, my sister, my older brother and sister, um, it, we were all under, the, I mean, they were much older. So me and my sister were all under the same roof. Dad made good money. He was home kind of every night for dinner. It, it, it was, I'll say, yes, it helped. But on the flip side, there's a, there was a lot of negatives that came out of that. It was, there was no relationship with my dad. There was no, nobody taught me how to effectively communicate with people. You know who taught me how to communicate with people? My wife, after I met her and I was 30 years old. Wives are good at helping knock the edges off us, dude. Yeah. So I think it did. I think it did obviously help me having that, that base when I was younger to look back on and say, this is what a family should at least look like from an appearance standpoint. Um, but there was no, my, my wife says constantly and my wife, my mom and I have the best relationship in the world right now. I love my mom. I, as you know, I'm a truck driver. I talk to her for at least probably one to two hours a day on the phone and I can have honest heart to heart conversations with her. And I've told her like the way that my sister and I were raised, it was, excuse my language fucked up. So, but now we can look back on it and we can talk about it and she's healed and I'm healed and we're healing. So, but yeah, I, I think it helps having a model to look back on. Yeah. Sorry that I extended that all the way out. No, that's okay. I mean, totally. So when I wrote my book, it really upset my mom because I highlighted some things in there that, that affected me as a child. Um, and, and my mom was a great mom and really did do the best she could. No, for sure. My mom, I mean, she, she was also young, made a lot of mistakes. Right. But, um, at, at, on the same note, yeah, um, you know, th there's always those circumstances that kind of, I think, tilt us in the wrong direction. But like, 
I think for me, and I, I can only speak for me, uh, you know, I, I had this model of, 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 of like, this was the standard of living for, for, for my family. So that was the goal I shot for. I didn't know how I would get there, but I knew what it was, right? I, I had a, a measure. And so that was very, very helpful. But I still had to do a lot of work, and, I, and it was still a real disadvantage having a criminal record and stuff like that. I think I just, I really tried to build relationships with people that could help me move forward that were compassionate. What I learned when I was out there is there's a lot of people out there, especially in the human service realm, social workers, even some police officers, um, people um, working in these spaces that really do want to see us succeed and really oh, yeah. try to help us do get there no i i've, no, run, I've run, run into, into i've run into, into corporal simsack which i love corporals he was so hard on me when i was in county uh my old probation officer but he he does nothing but tell me how 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 proud he is of me when i see him now and you know i've my old probation officer and other people that i've run into throughout the community and so yeah it's there are there are people i think there's more out there than you realize that want to see you succeed yep. Yep. even people that 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 are 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 you know, kind of scared of, of people that live the lifestyle that we live that, you know, are like, you know, are, are the ones that may advocate for prison. Like once they see you and meet you and, 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 and really see that you're trying, even those people will lend a hand to, to, to Oh yeah. 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 I, dude, my, the company I work for, they're all, they are a great group of people. And I'm not just saying that because they're my employers. Cause I would a hundred percent say they were trash, but <laughs> they're a great group of people. They're, out of the Midwest, out of Indiana. And when I started pumping these episodes out, you know, and I've always been honest with my felony and they're, they're supportive. They're encouraging. They're like, yeah, this is great. And none of them have ever been in trouble. It's, it's a straight like Midwest Christian household that, you know, um, but yeah, there's, there's tons of people out there. And the, I mean, just looking at the social media platform alone, like posting these episodes, like the outpouring of love and support and everything that's out there. Now, I think people this day and age understand America has a, our hearts broken at its core, you know? And I, I think everybody as a whole is starting to understand it's going to take a village. It's going to take a, a nation to mend this heart. And if we don't start to be more forgiving, and obviously you still have all these idiots out there that are going to want to argue and fight and, and be nasty, but that's going to, the good comes with the bad, you know? But I think people are starting to realize it's okay to be supportive. It's okay to, and mental health, mental health has such a platform right now. Like it's, it's, it's got a huge stage that it's sitting on the, where it's, it's talked about regularly. It's given its own month. It's, you know, so people are, people are picking up on it. No, for sure. Um, you know, I think we need to do a lot more focus on, on, um, you know, on the concept of, uh, and truth about, uh, people with addiction issues, um, mental health issues in and of themselves don't send people to prison addiction. will. Yeah. Right? yeah. And and you might have uh uh you may have underlying mental health issues that help drive that behavior or did at one time. Um certainly help de- develop addiction, but um, you know, people can become addicted just by chasing the positive reinforcing effects of the drugs with no underlying mental health issues at all. Um and, and so um, you know, addiction causes I mean it, it, we don't have time to go through all these stats, or I would because I train on this topic, but it's really <laughs> mind mind blowing. Um, how much of our societal problems are really um, caused by, you know, the 10 or 15% of people that are truly addicted or, or drug abusing. And, and that's yeah. a lot of our individuals that are, that are locked up. Um, we are locking up a lot of people who just have severe drug problems. And sometimes, you know, when people are out there, not in their right mind, we have to put them in cuffs. I call it arresting the disease, but sending them to prison is not the solution all the time because, uh, prison is an extremely stressful environment like you're going to send you right and and it causes more trauma and then you get out with a record on top of that and uh you know underneath that level of stress relapse uh is pretty high right it doesn't well relapse and recidivism i mean you go right back to what you were doing before that's why the rates are so high yeah and so we have to help people understand like you know hey um there's an there's an amazing life without without drugs and alcohol, if you have mental health issues, you know, there is help and support. And, you know, I like to help guys that I work with and mentor really cast a long-term vision for their life. 
because that's what kept me going long-term. There, there were days when it was just so hard. I felt like giving up, but I'm just like, no, um, I, th there's a future, there's a future for, for me. And, um, you know, it, it's just a matter of me being persistent and staying the course and just not going back to the behavior I knew. I had to cut everybody else I knew off when I got out of prison. I didn't associate with old friends. It was a lonely place for a while. Um, I had the challenges of having a record, but I also, I had to make new relationships because I didn't, I didn't trust any, any of the people I was around prior to me going to prison. I decided yeah. to cut it all off. And a lot of those guys are not around today or they're locked up, you know, because they, they weren't able to, to make that change. So. No, man. And it's, it's, it's the, the process is all the same. It doesn't matter what route you take or what avenue, what different side streets you go down. It's, it's different people, different places, different mindset. That's, that's what it all boils down to overall. So um, you can do it your own way, but if, if you don't cut certain things out of your life, you're, you're going to be back at square one. Um, hey, listen, there's, there's a couple things that we have not gotten to, and we're rounding up about 10 minutes out that I, I really wanted to talk about. And I'm going to mine, first of all, because uh, I'm obviously a truck driver. Explain your role as a DOT uh, substance abuse professional. The SAP credential is a qualification to work with people in safety-sensitive jobs um, that are, you know, employers that are, are, are DOT um, certified, um, you know, have safety-sensitive employees. And so th that could be working with airline pilots, boat captains, um, Coast Guard, um, pipeline workers, uh, FMCSA, so, you know, your truck drivers and, and stuff, and um, Federal Transit Administration. And um, anybody in these uh, safety-sensitive jobs are required to, to drug test, random pool drug testing. And if there's a positive, then they have to go see a, a DOT-qualified SAP in order to um, start that return to duty process. Right. So basically it involves a, a, an initial assessment to determine whether somebody has a drug problem or maybe they just need some education. So DOT requires that we offer one or the other. Um, and, and we don't do the service. Usually we refer them out. We aren't allowed to do the assessment and the service. So when they're done with service, they'll come back and see us again. If we're satisfied with what they've done, we'll uh, make any other additional recommendations and, and, issue a testing schedule and send that to the employer if they have one or the future employer if they, you know, when they get a job. Um, with FMCSA, we have to go into the clearinghouse and clear people in the clearinghouse in terms of, yeah. you know, putting in the dates and stuff like that. Test. So, uh, you know, it's it's a safeguard for the public. Um, yeah. They tell us yeah. when we become a SAP that, you know, the person you're seeing who violated DOT testing rules is, that's not your client. The public's your client. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you have no you have no um, you know, you can't have any bias for or against an employer or employee and stuff like that. Your sole purpose is to protect public safety. And so it, it's a heavy weight, actually, to be a SAP because it's like, man, I hope I'm, you know, you, you really have to have a lot of clinical experience and judgment. And good judgment to, to well, and I mean, coming from coming from your background, my background. I mean, I, I'm I'm literally putting myself in your shoes right now, and and listening to somebody that has a drug problem that has lost their CDL or lost their pilot's license at that point because of an addiction, and you're probably like heartbroken for him, and you're like, and you want to, maybe not heartbroken, but like you feel bad for him, like you understand. But again, you're, and that's why I wanted to talk about this because you're. Your duty is to protect the public in that role. So, I mean, that's it's got to be tough, man. And when you told me on the phone you were a DOT SAP, I was like, oh, okay. Like, that's that would be a heavy weight to carry. Like, I don't know if I would want to do that being a former drug addict and a truck driver. It is. And I can tell you, um, you know, I don't take that role lightly by any, any stretch. Um, you know, I don't want anybody to get injured on the road. So luckily for, for, for SAPs, you know, one of the criteria to be a SAP is that you really have to have experience in, in, in the diagnosis, even though we don't diagnose, but we have to have experience in the diagnosis of, of a, a substance use disorder. And there's 11 criteria for the DSM. So what I'm looking for when I assess somebody is I'm looking for not just whether they tested positive, I'm looking for whether they're using drugs in a patterned way that has caused, um, functional impairments in their life that would qualify them for treatment. Um, if I can't find those, they automatically get education. Then it's up to me to decide how much education or 
or meetings or community lectures or whatever it is that I want them to go to to feel like they satisfied, then they have to come back and report to me what they learned. Um, and, and some guys, you know, unfortunately just are like this, you know, I just smoked some weed. This isn't that serious. I'm like, it's, it's serious when you, when you're in a truck and you kill a family, yeah. right? Because yeah. you have delayed response time or, or, or whatever. So it's, you know, uh, you get guys in there that are, you know, when I do education for other saps, um, most of the time people are really grateful. They're like, man, I didn't know that stuff that you taught me. I didn't know. Now I know. Now I get it. And I'm like, you know, you're, you're an adult. I don't advocate drug use or, or over drinking. You're an adult. You can do what you want, but you cannot work in the safety sensitive job and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you can't drink in an unsafe way. You can't use substances uh, that the DOT or anything that's going to, you know, impair you. And, and certainly whatever DOT is testing for on the panel, you can't use. (laughs) So, so they kind of get it. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been great to do it over the last few years. It's one of the, one of the few, few jobs that I have that some days I just, you know, you just don't want to always do your job, but I always want to do South work. Is <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. I know I, when you said DOT SAP, I was like, Oh dude, that's, I, I mean, I guess, I, I guess I had more of a feeling over it because I obviously I'm, I'm a truck driver, but um, I wanted to touch on that. We're rounding out real quick, but I, I wanted to plug what you have going on. So you have your own uh, podcast, Better Than Well. You've written a book, Better Than Well. I want you to get me uh, links to whatever those are. If you can email them to me because I'll throw them up on my website. If anybody else wants to go check it out, check your book out. Um, talk about that just just briefly while we're rounding out. Yeah. So um, if, if for those of you who like to listen to podcasts, um, you know, uh, it, I have people come on and tell their stories and 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 how they got well. Uh, in the podcast and how they pulled their life together. And it's just a means of giving the community hope. Um, and, and not just, not just people that are struggling, but family members who have people struggling and loved ones that have people struggling. And, and the podcast was, was pretty popular. Uh, you know, uh, people like listening to it. Um, and I got real busy and I, I kind of like put it, put it off. Uh, I think I, I think I produced the last one in June or July of last year, but there's 29 episodes up. Um, I'll, I'm going to resume here pretty soon, but I'm going to put out maybe one every two weeks or once a month because I'm going to have a lot, a lot of responsibilities on my plate coming up. The book was just um, me telling my story and how I got well and what my pathway to recovery is and helping people make people aware of, you know, some of the risk factors that contribute to somebody going this direction in the first place and my own spiritual recovery. A lot of people that get that get well and overcome um, have some sort of spiritual awakening. Some of them, some of them get to get get it together in different ways. There's a lot of different pathways to to getting it together. So um, my story will benefit some and maybe not others. The book is available pretty much everywhere on Amazon. Um, it's it's a good read no matter what. Um, but I I really wrote it to encourage people to uh, you know to write their own stories. Guys like you how you pulled it together. Cause you know, the podcast is, is, is great too, but some people like to read. And so it's yeah. on audiobook too. It's on audible. Um, you, you can listen to it that way. Um, I give more books away than I sell. I really just care about, um, people have, you know, being encouraged and having hope than I care about making sales. I make my money elsewhere. It's funny. I don't know how familiar you, have you ever heard of Sonny Von Cleveland? He's out of, uh, Where's that at in um, Coachella? He's down in Coachella. I don't know how close that is to you or where you're at, but he wrote a book. He he found that he started the Von Cleveland Foundation. He's a really great guy, great inspirational speaker, advocate for bullying, things like that. He was on, but I I was just curious if you had heard from him. But it was funny because he he wrote a book um, called Hey White Boy, and he said the same. He said the exact same thing. He was like I and. And you know that's how, that's how I, I'm just going to say that's how you know you're dealing with somebody that truly loves what they do, has a passion for what they're doing, and that is helping people. You know, I I can always tell the guys that I have on here that have an actual heart for doing it, and I I think everything that you're doing, man. I I wrote a whole list of all of your accomplishments. I mean, all the way down to summa cum laude from Grand Canyon. Like I was, I was on your LinkedIn page stalking you a little bit ago, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, think, I think my, I think the most mind blowing thing uh, that, that happened to me at all, everything that happened to me is the fact that I teach in criminology now. 
and I and I'm yeah. a felon. Yeah. Right. I, I think that was like that was incredibly interesting to me because most of my students are are going into corrections. Most of them are going into law enforcement. And so I get an opportunity to uh kind of give them the real help work some compassion into them before they go. So so they don't go in with this mindset, this arrogant mindset, um, you know, that, that they often yeah. go in with. And you know, it's it you know, I will say this. I think anything is I mean, obviously you can you can recover a lot of your dreams um you know in this process of of trying to put your life back together when you get out i mean i'm a felon and i can't own guns uh, uh, even though my record's been erased they didn't give me my gun rights back so obviously i can't ever be a police officer if i wanted to be but i could be a hundred other other things other things that are great um you know so so there is a life after getting out of prison the few first few years can be a struggle, but if you're persistent and you just, you know, work yourself off of parole and get yourself stable and then sit down and plan for what you want for your life long-term and begin to uh, ask people who know how to get their questions and just slowly pursue it. Within a few years, man, your whole life is different. Yeah. So and I, you know, my dad, my dad, rest his soul, he's been gone for about 15 years at this point, but he always used to tell me, <clears throat> Nothing worth having comes for free. And, you know, if, if you're not willing to put in the hard work and you're not willing to just go through the motions and dig your heels in the trenches the first couple of years that you come home, then it's 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 not going to you're not going to value it either way. I mean, I, you could probably speak from that standpoint as well. Where you're at now is so beautiful and so valuable at this point in your life. But it's been a lot of hard work. Like oh, everybody sees, tired. everybody sees really the finished tired, product. Dude. Yeah, yeah so everybody sees the finished product. Nobody sees the tears. People want people want me to come do come do like jobs, and and I've turned a lot of jobs down that were higher paying than what I make now. And it was just like, no, I need to protect my peace. I'm really tired. Yeah. Right. And, and 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 so sometimes, I mean, and you get to a place where you can do that. I couldn't turn anything down in the beginning. <laughs> but but you know i've right. been at this for 17 years and it's rockets blazing since the day i walked out of the gate and it, it but it has been rewarding listen i have a great marriage i have kids and grandkids now that i get to enjoy you know i i own a, a little house you know i have the i have a nice truck in the driveway i i, I literally walked out of prison with nothing and i had a, a mountain bike and a backpack a week later and i worked myself up to this from that so, so you know, awesome. it, yeah, it it can it, it can happen with 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 anybody, but you know, it's 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 that persistence and finding a, a community and a network of people, you know, to support you. So I'm really happy you're doing this, and I hope it takes off for you. I'm gonna help you the best I can. I know that um, I, I have a lot of 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 you know friends that were felons that that I have also gotten their records cleared here in California that were that had way more prison history than me. Um, and some of them are females. And uh, we have a female version of the program that I described earlier in Kern County. Okay. Um, I had talked to the director and, you know, she said, I'd be more than happy to come on and talk about that and talk about that. That would be program. amazing. So, so I, I will, I will hook you up with that because I want to be supportive in what you're doing. And, and um, I think as this show grows, you're probably going to get people from all over the country on your podcast and you're going to see some commonalities and differences and hopefully this gets out there. Yeah, man, I, I'm already seeing it and it's already, it's already been, and I'm very green behind the ears with this. Like I told you when you called, I don't ever want to put like a false perception out there that like, you know, it's, it's way bigger than it was. It's new, but you know, I'll tell you, it's been something that I've been passionate about since I came home and I've always tried to find a, I've always wanted to be, I've always had that, that itch to be different. I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. And I know podcasting is hard and I know. There's no money in it. And I know, you know what I mean, but it's, it's an avenue and it's getting you on and you're in a complete different time zone on the other side of the country. And I can still come on and connect with you and get your story out there and let people understand that, you know, you can build an amazing life for yourself. And you said, and that's why I love you, dude, because you just said the same thing that I've said a hundred other times. On every other episode, I'm like, you know, I don't live in a 15,000 square foot mansion. I live paycheck to paycheck. I have a nice truck in the driveway. I have a wife that I adore with all my heart. I have two kids that love me. I have a great life. I'm at peace. That's all I want, you know? 
And you just said the same thing. And that's why. Well, so it's, it's, it, I, I tell people, you know, like, uh, and, you know, I know we're going over here a little bit, but I tell people this. No, tell you, no we're good. I, I, I lived in a six by nine cell with, with another dude. Like anything after that's looking up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, ate, I ate ramen and, and uh, you know, uh, basically wore the same thing every day. And, um, you know, every, anything beyond that's looking up. But, but really, you know, um, there are. Uh, fields uh, uh, that that will enable you to to uh, make some money and and have that for you. I mean, truck driving is one of them. Uh, there are a lot of unions that that will support um, people as long as they're not on parole that they, they can get into. Union oh jobs yeah, and work. There's no, I push truck driving to all I, all the guys that are struggling that have a clean driving record. I push it to every one of them. Yeah, and, and some of them can go on to be uh, you know drug and alcohol counselors too. That's an easy entry level field because yeah. it's the the expectation is you're probably a former addict and a felon anyway <laughs> you know I mean? right so like in almost every state so um but sometimes that leads to people going back to school to get their master's in social work or their doctorate in psychology um and if they're academically inclined that works and if, if they're more um, the type that that are brilliant and working with their hands or like to drive and like that that kind of skill um, I don't recommend uh, long, long periods of, of college and debt for them. Um, but if somebody's right, academically right. inclined, then they should go that way. Um, if if I had a knack for something other than this, I probably would be doing it because then I wouldn't be in school debt. But like, this is what I've been called to. Well, know? but I also but want, I to also want to make the statement on here to anybody listening. You know, I did a I did an episode yesterday, a girl named uh, Tori Smith, and she she was doing meth. She was addicted to meth, got got in some trouble. And when she turned her life around, she found a company that would basically pay for schooling. So she's like a residential, um, what, like a, a, she, she works with the people on the floor right now, but she's going for her CDC, but her company's paying her to do that. And there's companies that'll do that. You just have to, again, put in the work, have the motive, be motivated to do it, find a company that's going to help you pay for schooling instead of going into debt and just do it. Like, you know, there's all kinds of avenues and resources out there for felons that you don't, you don't have to live uh, in a dead end job that you hate. And, you know, it's, and once you can, once I was, I did an episode earlier and the girl made a statement, once you can stop chasing paper and you chase peace, it's, it's a whole different lifestyle. Like you're, you're on a whole different level at that point. So, um, Mike, I think you're doing a great thing, man. I, I, plan on staying in contact with you absolutely in fact yeah. i'm going to look you up on i don't know if you're on facebook or what social media you're no, on, but I am. We'll connect with me on facebook um covenant training and consulting um uh you know you can contact me that way um you can contact me on my regular facebook page uh if you send me the 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 video or I'll yeah, yeah. into to um to some of the uh you know organizations that help convicted felons here um some of them might be interested in going in onto your show if you put your contact information that yeah. will enable yeah. you to be able to uh or them to be able to contact you that way so yeah i'll try to get you um some visibility in my local area if you want to share this podcast with me when it comes out that would be awesome man i i greatly appreciate any little bit of help i can get so all right brother i'm gonna go ahead and call this guys thanks for tuning in i appreciate each and every one of you and again if you're in the hole there's only one way out and that's up guys i love you we'll talk to you